0: Good morning, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 6. Book of Proverbs chapter 6, if you need a copy of God's Word, uh, just slip up your hand. Uh, We've got extras in the back coming down the aisles right now. They'd be glad to to give you a copy to look off of. We're in Proverbs chapter 6 and we'll begin reading in verse 20 here in just a moment. And then we are actually going to work all the way through chapter, the end of chapter 7 this morning. The end of chapter 7. So we have been journeying through uh, the book of Proverbs, verse by verse, passage by passage, uh, for since January, beginning of January. And one of the most beautiful things about uh, working through books of the Bible expositionally is that it brings you to texts, that perhaps you would not just choose to preach on uh, if you were given the choice, right? It brings you to texts as you're working through the book of the Bible uh, that are not as fun to teach on, uh, not as, as glorious, just exciting to teach on, but sometimes it stings, sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's even awkward texts to preach on, but most of the time it's timely texts that we preach on, Uh, One of my favorite parts about preaching through the book of uh, the Bible, and verse by verse, passage by passage, is just to watch God's sovereign hand orchestrate the things that we need to hear when we need to hear them. So we've been working through the book of Proverbs, and one of the voices that we have heard throughout the book so far has been particularly the voice of a father who is raising his son to walk according to God's wisdom. And so he's preparing his son for the types of temptations that he will come across as he grows up through the different stages of life, and the father is offering him this wisdom to cling to. It's no surprise that in those lectures, we are now coming to the second and third lecture in Proverbs that address particularly matters of sexuality and sexual sin. As King Solomon writes these proverbs, he knows the kinds of temptations that he himself struggles with and that await all of God's people. He knows the kinds of conversations that parents should be having with their children if they expect their children to be citizens in the kingdom of God. So we're going to start out reading, um, we're not going to read all of it right up front because it's such a big section, so we're just going to read verses 20 through 30, twenty through 35 to begin with. We're going to pause and pray, and then as we progress, we'll work all the way through chapter 7 as well. So let's, let's hear God's word. Verse 20, my son, keep your father's commandments. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. All right, let's pause and pray and then progress through the text. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word that it speaks to our weaknesses and our needs. God, we pray that you would help us to understand these words and why your Spirit might speak them to our hearts in this moment, and we pray that we would listen and believe and confess and repent and combat our sinfulness, and may we rest in Christ after we've wrestled with this text. Father, we pray that you would work many miracles in this room, uh, that you would Take my mouth over and help me to speak only true things. Protect me from saying anything in error. And may I do it in the spirit of Christ, we pray. By your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around the neck. The father is obeying... What God has commanded him to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Father is doing what every good parent should do. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words, I command you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. The message of the Old Testament that King Solomon would have had would have, been, uh, would have seen frequently the responsibility of parents to speak what God has already spoken, so that their own children not only would know what God had said, but they would actually bind God's words onto their hearts and tie them around their necks. The idea is, is that wherever the child will go, even when they leave the home, they will take the memorized, internalized words of God, and those words will actually protect them when their parents are no longer around to protect them. That's the emphasis of verses 22 and 23. Notice, notice how, how the word of God passes down to the children, and then it takes over the parental responsibility. Look at verse 22. Notice what the words themselves are doing. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. The idea is that children are born into the world needing guidance, needing direction. And the job of the parent is to instruct so diligently in the short time that they have with them that that the teaching and the instruction, even when they leave the home, that their words would take over the leadership responsibility. That the, the word of God would then lead them, watch over them, even talk with them like a conversation partner when the moment of decision comes. The word of God, we teach them functions like a lamp guiding the way through the darkness of our world. The, the, even the moments of discipline over the years open for them the way of life, anybody's heard that sort of saying or joke? Like, I hear my father's voice whenever I do this. You know, that's what we hope happens, right? That's what that's what we hope happens to our own children. That's what we hope happens in our own lives. That as we walk in God's world, and we are faced with a decision, a voice comes. We hear a voice saying, "Do this and not that," because of the words we've applied into our heart over years of time. This is why we're primarily a Bible-teaching church. We believe that we all need the leading, watching, illuminating, life-giving Word of God every day, right? Now, in verse 24, it now makes a transition to a particular thing that those words will protect you from in the coming days. Verse 24 to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now notice the word to. So all that talk about the words and commandments and instructions being hung around the neck and carried with you, it, it will do something. To, it will do something. Somehow, way, the commandments and teaching pressed into the heart, then protects from the ever encroaching temptation of particularly sexual sinfulness. Now there's a lot of things that we can talk about in this very large section of text that we're looking at. But there's one foundational truth for today's message that sort of stands above and below all the other things that we talk about, and it's this. God's Word is clear about sexuality. God's Word is clear about sexuality. Now, that truth alone is a truth that could get you fired from your job to hold that truth loudly. That truth alone is one of the most combated truths that we find in the Scriptures. Wisdom, according to what we've learned about in Proverbs thus far, is about knowing God and living in God's way in God's world. And so back in Proverbs 3.19, it said this, and we'll see this all the more next week. But it said this, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So, so by God's wisdom, he founded the earth and everything in it. That by wisdom, he, he created all things. Like God didn't do anything by accident, including his creation of humanity, male and female, to function and relate to one another According to his design. He made male and female to be wonderfully different from one another. To function in relationship with one another. In monogamous, committed, covenantal love relationships. We see it as early as Genesis 2 verse 24. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. In the Old Testament... In the New Testament, God is very clear about the boundaries and parameters of his design for men and women and marriage. There is no uncertainty about what God has said. Sexuality and sex, according to God's design, is a big deal for the God of the Bible because, most fundamentally, most primarily because of what it's all designed to reflect, the greatest love story ever told. I want to read these words from Pastor Ray Ortland, who wrote uh, uh, a devotional commentary in response to this text, and this is what he says, Marriage is not just another mutation in human social development. Marriage is a divine creation pointing to someone, to something beyond us. A man and woman falling in love, committing themselves with lifelong vows of faithfulness, uniting sexually, living together till death do they part. It's all pointing to the mega romance of Christ and the church in love forever. A man and woman in love display the ultimate story of the Son of God coming down to win his heart with great suffering, a bride from the wrong side of town. God created the universe for the purpose of telling that love story. More than any other reason, that's why sexuality matters, whether married or single. Just being a man is a gospel privilege. Just being a woman is a gospel privilege. What we are is about the gospel story that God is telling to the world. Sexuality matters to God because our sexuality and our marriages were designed to glorify God the God of the universe, and Christ's sacrificial love for us. Paul picks up that Genesis 2 verse in Ephesians 5, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In fact, when Paul chooses to articulate just how naturally sinful every one of us is, is. He references particularly humanity's disposition to rebel even against God's design for male and female relationships. I mean, you, you want to you identify just how sinful we are, use the example where we rebel against our own biology, against the way we're even born into the world. We are born sinful. Our desires are broken from birth, our affections are so naturally corrupted that our human nature is to rebel against nature itself. I mean, you know this text, but but look at it in, in this context. Romans 1, verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. now, notice in Romans 1 what's happening. How exchanging God, right, did not worship God, but worshiped the creature, how that runs parallel with exchanging God's design for male, female, and marriage, right? Rejecting God's design for gender and marriage and rejecting God Himself run parallel to one another. God's Word is clear about sexuality. The question is not whether that he's spoken on these matters, the question is whether we will fight against our own broken desires that lie to us about the path to the joy. The question is whether we will submit to God's authority in our lives, even when our broken affections want something else. You see, in verse 27 through 29, the father starts to communicate to his son how silly it would be for him to rebel against God's authoritative design for his life with his wife, thinking that there's not going to be any consequences. This This is me and my body and my personal relationship. This doesn't affect anybody. This doesn't hurt anyone. Verse 27, Proverbs 6, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. The father seems to go on to suggest that sexual sin has unique and even more serious consequences than other sins. Sins like theft. Look at verse 30. He says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold, he'll give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Now, what's the father arguing with all of this? The father argues that if you steal money from a man, you can reconcile that by giving money back, right? Right? So if somebody steals a car from me, wrecks it, they can reconcile, and I'm right back to where I was if they buy me another car and replace what I've lacked. But if you sleep with a man's wife, there's nothing that can be done that can truly fix or undo what has been done. Do you see the the argument? You can't just go buy him another wife. You you, you can try to pay the man a a sum of money, but he's not going to take it. No compensation, no gift can undo the damage or satisfy the rage and fury of the one whose covenant marriage has now been defiled. Do Do you see the argument? This is deeper than material stuff that can be stolen. What is done cannot be undone. The ramifications will still be there. Now, if you have been wronged in this way, the furious man seeking to kill the adulterer is not the shining example here in Proverbs, okay? The husband acting out in rage in this proverb is not to be mimicked. It's this, this is here to show how deep the hurt and pain and consequences of sexual sin really goes. So the point here is that there are inevitable, temporal, and eternal consequences to rejecting God's design for how sexuality should work in the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. And then the question then becomes, okay, well, if that's true, why would anyone sin in this way? Okay? So if if the Bible's super clear on this, that the, the destruction that follows, why is anyone playing with this fire, walking on these Well, that's what the father turns to more fully in his next lecture, chapter 7. So, look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to quickly see five truths about sexual sin from chapter 7. Verse 1. My son... Keep my words, treasure up my commandments with you, keep my commandments and live, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you're my sister, call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Reminder again, make wisdom your friend, keep commandments, treasure the word. Every sexual sin, really every sin is always a breakdown of this instruction first, Okay, so here's truth number one, truth number one about sexual sin. Sexual sin is first a rejection of God. Sexual sin is first a rejection of God, always, always. You can justify about how you felt or the circumstance that you're in or the way God made you and all that kind of things, but the Bible is crystal clear. It's always an exchange of God, first, first creator for creature. It always begins with the question of the serpent in the garden to Eve. Did God really say that, Eve? Is that what he really meant for you not to partake of this thing? Does God really care about sexuality? Does He really care about faithfulness to marriage, or sex outside of marriage, or, or gen, the gender given to me at birth? Does He really care about purity? Does, sexual sin is always a questioning of the designer first, and whether he has our best interest in mind, or whether he is keeping something from us that would truly satisfy the longing of our souls. The parable that the father goes on to tell his son articulates the kind of person who sort of just marches to his death in sexual sin. Look at verse six. He says, "'At the window of my house, "'I've looked out through my lattice, "'and I have seen among the simple. "'I have perceived among the youths "'a young man lacking sense, "'passing along the street near her corner, "'taking the road to her house.' in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness father describes to his son a young man who lacks sense he is simple the the hebrew term there for simple could be just translated as open he is open. In other words, he's not committed to anything particularly. He's not committed to what God has instructed. Rather, he's open to any path or any opportunity that might come along to make him feel a certain kind of way. In other words, this young man has already neglected and rejected the instruction of God before he ever passed by her street corner. He's already ignored God long before the twilight of his destructive decision And it's never just about ignoring God's voice, it's about replacing God's voice with the voice of another. You you plug your ears to lady wisdom, and you open them up to lady folly, and she is always really quick to speak. (laughs) Verse 10, behold, the woman meets him, Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, now at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face, she says to him. All right, number two, sexual sin pursues you. Sexual sin pursues you. We do not live in a morally neutral world that is simply okay with your purity. No, no, no. We live in a morally corrupt world that is not satisfied until you join in on the corruption. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been in a situation where someone was sinning in a particular way, either around you or in close relationship with you, and it's almost like they're not happy unless you're doing it too? Have you ever felt that? I mean, I had a guy like, literally like, throw a beer on me at a party in college. It just infuriated him that I was not partaking in the shenanigans that were happening. It was, he was unsatisfied until the good little preacher boy joined in on what he was doing to make him feel better about what he was doing. But We live in a moral neutral world that's okay with you standing by. Sexual sin pursues you. The adulteress is described as wily of heart. The dictionary definition of wily, because I had to look it up, Uh, skilled at gaining an advantage, especially deceitfully. Think wily coyote, except more successful, right? (laughs) None of you are roadrunners in here, (laughs) Sexual temptation is skilled at gaining an advantage, especially deceitfully. The woman in the parable is loud, wayward. She waits in the street, at the market, at every corner. She's forward. She's bold. She's hard to avoid, and so is sexual sin in our culture. It's marketed. It's celebrated. It's normalized on your social media feed, on the commercials, on TV, in the theater, when you go to watch a movie, in the crude joking with friends. It's always accessible, even in your pockets, and it's pursuing you. It's on your ESPN app. You just want to check sports, and then all of a sudden something pops up. It pursues you. Well, at the same time, as it's pursuing you, your corrupt heart has a presupposition, a disposition to like it. Because of sin of our hearts, we want it. Verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Notice notice how this woman personalizes her pursuit of this man. I came to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Number three about sexual sin. Sexual sin appeals to self-esteem, it appeals to self esteem. You see, sexual sin is never purely a physical act to satisfy a physical appetite. There is always a mixture of personhood and identity in every sexual decision. Every person in the room has this mixture of insecurity and this need to be affirmed by someone else. Adultery is never just about the physical thrill. I've I've sat in the counseling offices. I've talked with the people. It's never just about the ecstasy of a physical moment. It's always an emotional longing that got them to the door first. It's always about filling up what is lacking in our own self-esteem because all of us want to be wanted, long to be longed for, and thus we look for love right in all the wrong places. And sexual intimacy, it's like a drug, that temporarily satisfies the craving of our soul to be loved, appreciated, and adored. The only problem is, just like a drug, you come down off that high really fast. And you realize the world you're living in, for the moment, was actually only a harmful lie. And you're left with worse self-esteem than when you first began. This is true of all sexual sin, especially adultery, especially things like pornography. It's always wrapped up in this need for affirmation or to escape a world where you're not actually getting it. But this is true for the LGBTQ movement as well. I mean, everyone wants to be included. Everyone wants to belong. Everyone wants to be celebrated. And in this present sexual revolution... The LGBTQ community promises that you will both get to enjoy every sexual experience without limit and you'll be celebrated as courageous for doing it. That you somehow are, are, are amazingly brave by acting on your every sexual whim. And so even if you're in the room and you're loving and kind and welcoming to all people, And unkind to a transgender person and welcoming them around the table in your house and loving them. If you don't embrace the sexual revolution as good and right, you will be outcast in popular society. Now, if you engage in that type of sin, however, you will be welcomed by a community of people who say, we've sought you, we've found you, you're one of us. With such affirmation, such inclusion, such self-esteem boosting through sexual acts, they are cheap substitutes like a golden calf compared to relationship with the living God. And those longing for inclusion, for love, for affirmation can only ever truly be satisfied in the kind of relationships that the God of the universe makes possible. In Christ, who seeks you, Eagerly, who comes out to meet you, who invites you into relationship with himself, who says, I love you, who who wants you to enjoy at the affection, through the avenues he's prepared for you, eternal life, forgiveness, joy, a loving church family, a meaningful life of glorious purpose, serving the true God forever and ever, but you've got to trust him. Sexual sin appeals to self-esteem, but only God fills what is lacking in an empty soul. Of course, it's not just self-esteem. The temptress continues in verse 16. She tries to sweeten the pot here. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've, I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Number four, truth number four about sexual sin, sexual sin appeals to selfish desire. I mean, the tempters are just pulling out all the stops to appeal to what will make them feel good in the moment. You're going to delight in this. The sheets are luxurious, perfumed with the richest of smells. She's appealing to all the senses in every way, promising delight in the moment that will be worth it in the long term. And this is how all sin works, is it not? Sin wants you to zero all of your attention into the here and now and into the external senses in the moment, and it wants you to totally ignore any perspective that would cause you to look at the consequences for tomorrow or for next week or for the people whom you love dearly. Sin's everyday effort is for you to forget about eternity and live for today don't think about anything but this night this moment this evening soft sheets good smells physical delight here and now even if it leads you to hell there is deception weaved into every aspect of this especially and even as she defines love you notice the word she uses there the temptress calls what she is offering to this young man love But that's not what she's offering to this young man, is it? Love wants what's best for the other person, doesn't it? She wants what she can get from him, even if it costs him. Love is marked by sacrificial commitment to another person. She wants satisfaction from him, but makes no sacrificial commitment to him. Love doesn't last only, notice she says, fill our love till morning. Love doesn't last only for a night and end in the morning. Love goes on and on to every morning, even when the sheets smell more like throw-up from your toddler. (laughs) Not speaking from experience, from last night. Love pushes through that and still loves the next morning. She's not offering love. Love does not look like a perfumed bed where someone wants to take life from me. Love looks a lot more like a bloody cross where Jesus gave his life for me, where he committed to me. To save me, forgive me, love me, despite my sin, despite my failures, despite my unfaithfulness, despite whether he felt like it or not in the moment of his sacrifice. Love was honest about all of my screwed upness and chose to love me till it hurts anyways. Love looks like a bloody cross, which is why God designed marriage in the first place. That marriage would look a lot like verse 8, that God of Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the temptress here is acting in selfishness. And she's appealing to his selfishness. And that never works in a relationship, does it? Two people acting, thinking, deciding based off of their own selfishness. That kind of thing only lasts for a night, doesn't it? That doesn't last for the long haul. And as she's doing this, she's promising no one will ever know. Verse 19, my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk, and she compels him. Number five, truth number five, sexual sin falsely assures of secrecy and security. She promises that her husband's going to go on a long journey. There's no chance he's going to come and interrupt this. There's no chance he's even going to know about this. She's promising secrecy, security. And and here's the thing. Sin never delivers on its promise of secrecy and, and security. Never. I mean, maybe for a short season, but I promise you, disaster is soon to come. Sin is Always uncovered, often in this life, sooner than we think, and certainly on the last day of God's judgment. In fact, you want your sin to be uncovered here and now. If you understand what it is and what it's doing to you, it is by God's grace that your sin would come to light now rather than remain in darkness till the last day. Sin exposed is the only kind of sin that can be addressed, combated, forgiven, and overcome. And so if you're in the room this morning, and, and, and I know there's got to be people in the room, and you're living a double life, constantly covering up the sin you're living in, let me, just, let me just speak a word of warning to you. That safety and security of the darkness you live in, it's a lie. True freedom, true life eternal, true life more abundant is only found through confession of sin to a Savior And a church family who offers to both forgive you and help you fight that sin as the enemy it really is. Secret sin, secret sin is not a friend to protect. It is always a traitor and an enemy to expose as quickly as possible. Listen to how the father describes the fate of the young man who doesn't heed the words of this sermon. Verse 22, All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He he doesn't know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. What a foolish exchange sin really is. I mean, there's a God in heaven who loves you, A God who created sex and sexuality to be enjoyed in a particular way, a way that leads to life and life more abundantly, a way that leads to a a healthy family and children that grow to, to know God. There's a God who wants what's absolutely best for you, who wants life for you, who offers eternal life to you. There's a God who shows his love for you by going down into the chambers of death on your behalf. Jesus of Nazareth. Like a committed husband, laying his life down for his wayward bride, died for you. He plunges into Sheol for you, takes the punishment you deserve. Why would you run after a sexual relationship with someone, something that leads you into the chambers of death when God went to such great lengths to deliver you from the chambers of death? To, to face the chambers of death on your behalf, to invite you into everlasting life. Sin is always foolish. It is always a bad deal, promising you one thing that is far less than what the living God has promised you. What do we do with all of this? How do we respond? Uh, to passages like Proverbs 6 and 7. Let me leave you with four takeaways, just four words. Number one, confess. Confession of sin is the doorway into salvation. I mean, if you're not a Christian here, your first step is to recognize before God that you need His forgiveness you got to recognize that before you ever receive it. Confession is the doorway into knowing God. Confession of sin is also the doorway into Christian community. The only way to be known and loved and helped is to be honest with others about your struggle. Without confession, we don't have a church. We have a show once a week that we put on for your entertainment. Without confession, we don't have community. We have, hey, how's your week? The weather's good. How about the saints? Without confession, there's no revival. There's no spiritual awakening. There's no movement of God. Everybody wants the hyped worship service with the lights and fog and everyone jumping around and singing. Few people want the tears and the awkwardness of the confession that actually brings a movement of God. Confess. And number two, repent. Confession is only a part of the equation. It's one thing to admit that you've sinned. It's one thing to be sorry for the consequences of your sin. It's another thing to never want to do that sin again. To turn from that sin as the evil that it really is. So what does repentance look like for you this morning? What, what has God called you to repent from, which you have refused to do? What has He called you to? To do, which you haven't do. What's He called you to let go of, which you're still holding on to, as if it's something that's bringing you life? Confess, repent, and, then, and that begins a battle. That's not the end of the story. Confess, repent, and then third word here is combat. Two weeks ago, we saw... Very clearly, the devil is scheming against us. He's being strategic. If he's being strategic against us, we need to be strategic against him. We need to set real boundaries and take real steps to war against sin. It is an exhausting thing to be in an accountability partner with someone who comes to you every week just feeling bad that they've made the same decision again. That's that's confession and feeling sorry without any repentance. What does spiritual warfare look like for you these days? What is combating this? Let me encourage you to recruit some comrades, some brothers and sisters that will help you combat the enemy. One of the things you'll notice about the simple man throughout Proverbs, one of the things you'll notice about him wandering into the adulteress's home, he was always traveling alone. There was never anybody walking by his side to tell him, don't go down that street. Don't knock on that door. It's not worth it. Don't travel alone. Confess, repent, combat with a group of people who are as committed to your holiness as you should be. And lastly, number four, last word, rest. Rest. The Proverbs expose us to sin, guilt, shame, and consequences for our decisions, but they also prepare us For the gospel message that saves us. I mean, you gotta hit the Proverbs to know all of your failings, to know why it's so stinking good that Jesus died on the cross for you. (laughs) You gotta stop at Proverbs before you get to the gospel. You gotta stop at Romans chapters one through three before you can enjoy four to the end, right? You got to hit the sinfulness that that you have sinned against a holy God before you appreciate that that holy God would step into this earth, live the life you couldn't live, die the death you deserve to die, raise again on the third day and say, you're totally washed clean of all your failures of Proverbs chapter six and seven. The message of Christianity is not primarily a message of all the things that you should not do. If you've grown up thinking that Christianity was a big list of rules, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you have missed the message of Christianity. It is primarily a message about what Jesus Christ did to save us and to wash us clean from all the things we have already done. (laughs) That's, That's the message of Christianity. And as a bonus... As, as gravy on top, he says, you're free to now live a life away from all those things that was killing you. Here's the good life that you didn't know existed before. Forgiven of the bad life, let me lead you into the good life for the rest of your life until one day it's the good life forever and ever and ever. Amen. I'm going to close with this. This is the message of Christianity, First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. <clears throat> Paul writes this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's what the one true God offers you today. Let's pray and respond to Him. Lead us now, Lord, into a moment where we first just take time with you to confess. Father, to repent, to recognize that every sin we've ever done in secret was not in secret, but that your light shined upon it that you knew every moment and chose to love us anyways. Father, help us to grieve over our sin. We're going to sing two songs. And so, God, I pray during the first song, you would help us to search our hearts. You would help us to confess to you. And the second song, you would help us to receive your love and faith, to believe in the gospel that we've been given. Lead us through that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand.